Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Welcome to Hiraith. Summer has been as quickly morphed into autumn and brought with it some of the most stormy political weather of the current Senev. The 20 mile per hour speed limit in urban areas has dominated September politics, even as hospital waiting lists reach record highs and plans for Senev reform were also unveiled. Across the border, the Prime Minister has rolled back climate policies no one actually knew were coming in in the first place. And as conference season comes upon us, what can we expect from the parties as they establish their election footing? To discuss this and more, we are joined by an Oxfam alumni. We're joined by current head of Oxfam Cymru, Sarah Rees. Hello, Sarah. And former head of uh, Oxfam and current policy strategy and communications consultant, Steve Brooks. Hello, Steve. Hi, hi, hi. And this is also where I should declare that I'm also a former comms uh, assistant in Oxfam Cymru. And um, I suppose, actually, before I start, how is how are things in Oxfam, uh, Sarah, as we're all part of the Oxfam family, apparently? Yeah, really good right now. It's um, I've only been in this role for 18 months, and I think there was quite a lot of change within Oxfam globally, particularly in the pandemic. So we're just kind of gathering pace now into, into our new strategies and and really seeing where we can make a difference in Wales and across the world. So it's it's fab. Fantastic. And Steve, uh, I, I don't know if you do you still have any involvement with Oxfam at all? Or are you, you know, out, uh, out and about in the wild uh, at the moment? No, I think I've still got a direct debit, but I think the thing about Oxfam, it's um, it's one of those organisations, I think we all call ourselves ex-famers. If you've once worked for Oxfam, I think you're an ex-staff member for the rest of your life. Great place to work. Absolutely. Yeah, that's our Oxfam plug out of the way. Um, you know, it's it's rather painful to do this, and, and I know that you, you guys will probably have heard an awful lot of discussion about this already, but we do have to start with the 20 mile per hour default speed limit in Wales, which has been, you know, the, the biggest story and possibly the biggest issue ever that the Senate has had to deal with COVID aside. The law is now operational and the petition against it stands well over 400,000 signatories. What do you make of the way, you know, the policy has been introduced and the response both from politicians and the public? Maybe Sarah, if I can hand that to you first. Sure. I think um, for me, it's the kind of bold action that we want to see from governments, particularly as we're facing an unprecedented climate crisis. Um, I fully support the move and I said so on Twitter, much to my chagrin, and I'm sure we'll come to that at some point. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's high time that we redress the balance. And this addresses that need to make polluters pay. And particularly with this policy, make pedestrians and communities our priority. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely something that has raised a lot of, of conversation. Um, I think I found a particular bit of fun when I looked on the Senate website today and saw the most popular petition was the one of people want to remove 20 miles per hour, the second most popular people who want to keep the 20 miles per hour, and the third to initiate an um, an early Senate election. So I think it's also opened up a debate about the use of petitions in Wales. No bad thing at all. Steve, do you have any thoughts on this particular issue? Yeah, I suppose I'm slightly mystified, if I'm honest, at how it's become so divisive in Wales. I mean, for me, it's not a, a left versus right thing or a kind of Tory versus Labour thing. It, it's it's just a, a road safety 
thing. If you look at England, um, I think it's Cornwall County Council are introducing something similar. That's Conservative-led. Uh, North Yorkshire um, Authority, that's Conservative-led. They're about to do something similar. You know, the UK Department for Transport in their own guidance actually recommends something quite similar for local authorities in England. So it, it, it's kind of a direction of travel that I think lots of different governments, not just, you know, in the UK, but across the world, are, are going in. And I think it's really sad that some people who, you know, there are some genuine misgivings, I think, about the policy, and, and they're valid, but I think there are some people who perhaps have, have perhaps purposely, um, if you like, muddied the waters and not spread misinformation as such, but have kind of allowed confusion to, to, to reign. Yeah, I think this is the interesting thing that maybe, you know, we should, we should address is kind of mm. the difference between, you know, is the policy good policy? I know, has it been done well? Has it been... Um, has it been enacted as it, you know in a way that stands up to criticism and scrutiny because that actually frankly wouldn't all government policy be in a better position if it the answer to that was yes but there's also that there's a, a sort of weird populism uh, angle here in terms of the way that it has been slightly warped and uh, uh, whether it's misinformation or disinformation, I think the argument is there that what a lot of people, including, you know, quite a lot of famous faces, including, you know, um, uh, Jonathan Davis is one of them he, in his uh, on his Twitter profile or X profile, whatever it's called these days. Um, he he said, oh, I'm, I'm completely against a, a blanket 20 mile per hour ban, except for in these cases and it seemed to match the policy quite accurately and what he actually opposed was the kind of fictitious policy that certain people had promoted um and I, I just wonder whether you know whether there is a question as you said about petitions is the petitions process doing what it should do I mean arguably it's quite good to see so many people engaging with Senate position uh, petitions you know that would actually be quite a good news story in many regards is it also something about the public sphere or or the kind of tone of public public discourse at the moment what would you say is the kind of key takeaways from your point of view um you know just on the question of petitions it was also interesting the story that came out last week about the spike in online searches for a welsh postcode um so i think you know it's 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 a question of the validity of the petition um but when you... if, if i may interject i do i yeah, do sure. if i remember correctly i think the Llywydd or the senate put out a statement public statement saying that they were aware of some potential misuse of the system but they were largely quite happy that it was robust and that signatories were from within wales now we can only take that as face value but i, I i'm always a little bit wary of that you know as a slight conspiracy ish kind of tint to that and it you know brings back frankly trauma from the brexit referendum and the people's votes uh subsequent um you know uh process um so I, I i don't know whether we should how much credence we should give to that kind of thought about whether the petition was legitimate in the first place although De definitely happy, but i think on there what it takes us down is to the use of the polarized nature of social media um and that's really where a lot of these debates are happening and it's where that you know, sometimes misinformation can be spread. Yeah, there's a, for me, there's a there's a nice irony, which I'm sure is not lost on on Lee Waters, the responsible minister, in that actually it was the petition system that I think Lee used when he was head of Sustrans Cymru to campaign for an active travel act. And he was kind of one of the first people to kind of use that mechanism to get that law. And it was always held up for campaigners as a really good example of how to use the petitions committee. Um, so it, I suppose it's an unfortunate irony that actually he's now getting quite a bit of political grief uh, from, from, from that same process. 
I think for me, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head where there is a lot of misunderstanding about what the policy actually is. You know, it's not a national ban. It's not even an area-wide ban. Um, I think something like around about a third of Welsh streets actually come under the, the you know, the safe speed uh, limits and local authorities have the power to, to, to consult and, and, and to change that. I think probably what we will see is that as the days and weeks go on, when more people actually start driving around and actually seeing what it means in practice, they will have you know, perhaps question again some of the stuff they might have seen on Facebook or or, 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 or Twitter. But you're right. I think that there is the kind of the question of of popularism. It reminded me a little bit of the fuel strikes in I think like 2000, 2001, um, where that suddenly kind of exploded from from nowhere. But it also died down very quickly. And I, the bit that I, I suppose I just don't understand is why the the Tories are campaigning on it in this kind of way. I mean, tactically, they're getting a lot of attention for it, but I don't see people at the next general election or the next Senate election casting their vote because of 20 miles an hour. Um, there's plenty that arguably the Tories could attack Labour on. I, I just don't get the rationale. I don't see the, the, the ultimate strategy for them in, in, in really kind of piling on on 20 miles an hour. It's that, isn't it? It's a it's a really interesting point when you think of the hope that will come out of this is that it's really engaged people in understanding what is devolved and how they can have that um, engagement in our politics. Yes, and, and I think this is where I, I find the Conservative position also on this question really quite interesting. And as has been noted online on, on a number of occasions, it, the law was actually passed by a majority of conservative members of the Senate at the time as well. They supported it. And, you know, it's almost like that hasn't happened. And and mm. the current conservative group have decided that this is a wedge issue that they can use maybe purely for the purpose of raising, you know, notice of their own existence. I mean, that's that's a perfectly, you know, for, you know, if, if most, if you look at the Barron Cymru poll, for example, you know, the number of people in Wales who actually know who the Conservative leaders are and the Conservative group are in the Senate, maybe they, they might know who they are now if they have fronted such yeah. a campaign. I think the question that I I suspect probably represents the Hirath view of this about is about whether the tone of campaigning actually undermines trust in the Senate and Welsh democracy as a sub-state region or a sub-state nation, depending on your personal preference. I, you know, do you think there will be any kind of long-term effects on the, the nature of the Senate and arguably on Welsh government, will Welsh government feel slightly scared of taking any kind of major decisions in the future based on this backlash? I hope not. Um, I think Welsh Labour will stay the course on, on 20 miles an hour. Um, and I don't think it will um, temper the radicalism, if you can call it that, of, of the current Welsh uh, government. I do think, though, that we need to recognise that where populism is, where it feeds from, I think, it is an anxiety in society, an economic anxiety. You know, we've had pretty much, you know, frozen living standards for, for 13 years. People haven't seen any kind of increase in their, their wages for 13 years. It's increasingly difficult to get onto the housing ladder. And if you're, you're trying to rent, then my goodness, you know, what, what a situation you find yourself in. So I think a lot of people in Wales, a lot of people across the UK are really anxious about themselves, their families and, and the future. And populism kind of breeds on that. It kind of uses that anxiety and tries to kind of blame others. So I think that I always think that the kind of the task for progressives, whether you're in a political party or you're a civil society campaigner, is to not allow yourself to be distracted and to just continually 
focus on, listen to, and act upon the real anxieties that people that people have. Sarah, do you have any final thoughts? I'm I'm keen to drive as quickly uh, away from twenty mile per hour <laughs> zones as possible, uh, rather like many people in Wales. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on the question? I think it's just a general understanding of whatever you know side of this conversation people are on is that it's human nature to be adverse to change. And so it's going to take a little time to settle in. And once we've settled into that new normal, then, um, you know, hopefully it will bring a pace of life that does slow us down and, and lets us react more reasonably to things. Moving swiftly on, um, uh, the, you know, the, the kind of irony of this huge debate over 20 mile per hour speed limits has overshadowed so many many, uh, many other serious issues that you know, are present in Wales at the moment. Um, one of the biggest ones being health. And we have seen in uh, the last week or so, all of the health boards in Wales, all of them uh, go in special measures of one degree of seriousness or another. And, and I suspect, you know, that's going to be something that you know, will probably not be in many people's radar, but it is a really serious problem for people in Wales. The health system is not functioning properly and civil society seems quite quiet about that. I don't know why that would be the case. Do you have any insight or thoughts about why that might be the case? So, I don't know. I, I think that the situation for the NHS in Wales is incredibly difficult. But I think that's the same in England. It's the same in, in Scotland. Um, and I think, again, for those of us who've been around for a while, you will have seen, I think, Welsh Government try and do a lot and focus a lot on prevention. Um, and then there'll always be rising issues around kind of waiting times and kind of what's going on in secondary care. Um, and then it might feel like the focus shifts back to, to, to that. Um, and I think fundamentally, as, as a country, we've got a massive challenge to have a, I suppose, an NHS, which not only kind of works today and we get waiting times down and people have decent diagnostics and decent levels of care and all the rest of it, but actually we have an NHS which is going to be there in 10, 15, 20 years, which also means tackling some of the big problems around public health and all of the kind of the lifestyle um, illnesses are coming down the track. Um, the question of, you know, is this on the radar of the Welsh population, Welsh civil society? I think it is because I think everybody does have that kind of personal experience of where, you know, the NHS has saved a loved one who wouldn't be here otherwise, or the experience of, you know, somebody that we love who's perhaps had a really negative experience of the NHS. So I think at a kind of uh, personal level, I think we all talk about it. But what we don't see, I think, is is really a kind of a grown up debate in Wales about how do we actually tackle some of these problems, because we can criticise and people do obviously criticise Welsh Labour and their record on health. But the idea that we could just have a Plaid Cymru health minister or a Tory health minister, and suddenly they're going to have the ability to just shake a wand and, and make everything good it, it is laughable. So there are some like really deep seated challenges that I think need a kind of a national conversation, which is a political conversation, but I don't think it should be partisan. That, I mean, that that's, of course, like the overarching uh, kind of umbrella problem here is one of money. Uh, and there's a genuine question, you know, particularly as we've seen this year, as Mark Drakeford has said, the, the most difficult budget in the history of devolution, in-year budget cuts, which we haven't seen much or any of in the last yeah. 25 years. And of course, there is no easy answer to public services, uh, health, social care, many, many other things. Are we, 
is there, is, is there literally any nothing that we can do as a as a nation where the majority of our budget comes down uh, um, the M4 and we can't decide whether it grows or shrinks at all? Is that something? Is the immutability of the problem something that you know is causing the fact that we don't talk about it so much? Is that fair to say, Sarah? Um, I think if you just you know, when I came to this question, I thought even if we spent the entirety of our budget in Wales on the NHS, would it be in less of a mess? And it's what Stephen was referring to is that dual approach of, you know, we're still coming out of the pandemic um, and the problems that the NHS faced there. And also we've got to consider the future. Um, and then for me, it really got me to thinking about what are we using as our measure of success of our nation? We're focusing on GDP and growth. Mm. And is that the right thing? Or should we be considering more radical alternatives of that measure of success and how we focus on the prosperity of, of the people here in our nation? What would you, what would, how would you characterise radical alternatives in that, in that context? I think for me, it's looking at an economy that centres on social prosperity, a livable planet. Um, you know, it's it's that consideration of inequality. Um, why do we need to have growth for growth's sake? Um, and instead, looking at um, you know the kind of people who really need support that maybe don't have the access to pull themselves out of out of the the pressure that we're under or the poverty that they are experiencing. Yeah. I, I think I agree. And what's interesting, you know, we just had a whole 20 miles an hour discussion. That's a public health issue, actually, um, because it relieves pressure on, on the NHS in terms of casualties. It reduces deaths. It reduces serious inju injuries. We've got an environment bill going through the Senate, which will tackle poor air quality. That's a public health issue. It's not an environmental piece of legislation. It's a it's a public health um, piece of, of, of legislation. So I think there are things that we can do and should do. But I think, you know, when people say Welsh Government perhaps isn't doing enough on public health in one breath, and then in the second breath will oppose legislation for clean air, I, 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 you know, I think people need to be reminded that actually some of these big problems can only be tackled with what might seem like radical or controversial measures. And just on that point, I think um, I did notice that the Welsh NHS Confederation did make a call earlier this month for a commission in Wales on the future of the NHS. Yeah. Um, but if you come back to that GDP conversation and you know, one of the things that GDP ignores is the value of care and unpaid care, for example. And we know that the NHS is utterly reliant on social care, is reliant on unpaid carers to really you know, be that invisible net that holds our, our NHS afloat. Um, and we're not talking about them. And I think that's where um, civil society are really having that conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think the difficulty is that it's. I think it can be quite difficult to have a conversation in Wales about NHS reform, because what we don't want to do, or certainly what I don't want to do, is open up space for people who want to get rid of the NHS to use that as an opportunity to kind of dismantle it argument by argument and spread misinformation uh, about it. But we do need a conversation about how we can make sure that the NHS is still there in 10, 20, 30 years time. I think we spend more in Wales on health and social care than they do in England. And probably had it not been for austerity, we would have spent even more. So you know, thicken and should always be, you know, the right resource going in. But there's also a question of like, how do you design the NHS? How does the NHS work? What's our expectations of what the NHS can do and, and not do? And I would never want to go down like the argument of, oh, you should pay to see your GP, or maybe we should look at some kind of like socialised um, insurance um, 
kind of uh, measure or, or kind of greater involvement of the private sector for profit. But we can have our red lines, but I think we still do need a conversation about how can we perhaps refound the NHS um, so it's still there for our children and grandchildren. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't let uh, a phrase like red lines pass without asking whether those are clear red lines or not. Because, of course, the question here at the end of the day is how much actually could Wales do if it wanted to? You know, we have seen even the re most relatively modest measures that the Welsh Government wants to make, you know, for example, banning certain types of plastic, for example, blocked by UK Government on a whim because it basically doesn't like the Welsh Government do anything. Same, similarly with tax, we've seen, you know, a fairly innocuous tax like vacant land tax blocked indefinitely by the Treasury because reasons that the Treasury doesn't particularly fancy it or can't even be bothered looking at it. So is, is there a genuine issue here that Wales actually can't do anything significant with regards to changing the NHS until there is perhaps a different um, executive in a union parliament over in, West, in Westminster? Is that, is that just the case? You know, my view is clearly Wales is stronger in the UK than it would be outside of the UK. Um, I think, you know, whether we could afford uh, a, a health service like the NHS if we were independent, I would very much doubt we would be able to, to do that. I think Wales is always going to be stronger inside the UK. The two things we need are, number one, a UK government that I think values Wales and actually values things like the NHS. And number two, um, I would say we need a, perhaps not a written constitution, but actually the, the kind of the limits of what Westminster can do and the freedoms that Wales can do, I think actually do need to be codified. But as I say, inside the UK, not outside. So uh, what does the Senate control? The Senate controls itself these days, thanks to the um, Wales Act 2017. Um, there has been a lot of discussion about this. And again, you know, the question marks about populism have raised their heads again on this question, but we have seen proposals to expand the Senate, um, not only in terms of numbers, but then also perhaps broaden the representation through a change of voting system, which um, builds on the right to vote for 16 year olds and various other things in, the, uh, in previous uh, legislation. Relatively muted response, inevitably cost money, inevitably arguments are made about not wanting more politicians. Uh, would you consider that this to be a progressive step forward? Is this something that we should be looking forward to um, in terms of Welsh governance in the future? Or is this something that you think we should be more cautious of? Steve, you look you're like yeah, antsing to go. You're, you're like a bottle of pop there. Go on, Steve. Yeah. Uh, only because I, I, I kept my head down last week on, on Twitter because I've probably spent quite a few years campaigning for Senate reform and for 20 miles an hour. So um, I, I thought I'd perhaps sit last week out um i'm not sure it's progressive in the sense that it's, it's kind of particularly kind of left-wing in, in that sense but i think it, it it's it's the right thing to do i think in a functioning democracy you want your institutions to work as best they can and clearly a parliament of 60 members doesn't work it's it's not enough to uh, you know fill the government to have committees and to have cross-party groups and to have opposition that can you know do a decent job in terms of scrutiny so i think a bigger Senev is absolutely the right thing uh, to do. Um, I think most people probably say, you know, I don't really care very much about the mechanics of politics. I think most people probably don't want the cost of politics to, to increase. Um, I don't either. Um, so I'd probably like to save a bob or two by shutting down the House of Lords. Um, but I think, a, you know, a larger Senev is absolutely the thing uh, we need. There's probably, you know, I know some people are upset because 
STV isn't part of the, of the mix and there's a different uh, voting system that's going to be in there. But for me, I think the fundamental thing is having a, a parliament that's the right size that can do the job. Yeah, I think the question that I always come to when I say to people who are opposing is how on earth can we have a nation with um, an annual budget of around 22 billion and just for individuals scrutinizing that in the budget committee um you know and we all want affordability but i think more senate members the the numbers that have been crunched so far will show that they'll pay for themselves quite quickly um and that's that's the change that we want to see um when it comes to lists that is a little more of a tricky one for me i think a closed list is not the way to engage more people in our politics um, and i think a flexible list system for example would have empowered more voter choice um and i think it's it puts people off when the control is given to parties compared to them having their own individual choice and maybe there'll be some learning about you know the debate on 20 miles per hour that, that might help inform that as the decisions come forward that would be my hope We've heard a lot of elected representatives, notably not members of the Senate, uh, complaining about um, the potential loss of the constituency link um, for representatives. Do you see that as a major issue? Because whether it was a closed list or you know, a, a flexible list or STV, we would still likely see essentially mini regions instead of constituencies. Um, is that a major? Is that a major issue for you, Steve? I, I, I think. Actually, the new structure is better for a constituency link because what we're effectively going for is that all of the members will have a local constituency. Um, so I live in Cardiff West. Um, we might get kind of grouped with Cardiff North and together we'd elect six new members of the Senate. Those six members will all hopefully, uh, perhaps not if they're UK, but hopefully they'll all live in, in, in Wales, will we'll live in Cardiff, will know what's going on and will be locally based. And I think they will be closer to the people of Cardiff West and Cardiff North, arguably, than the regional members in South Wales Central currently are. So I, I actually think this system is good in that sense because it does really tie local members of the Senate to their, their local patch. Uh, Sarah, I, I, I suppose, you know, if I can ask the same question at you, but also kind of expand it a little bit. I mean, the, the, the closed list system is widely perceived as being quite imperfect as it is. Um, however, Many of the justifications of the closed list system were to do with, you know, also being accompanied by equality uh, legislation to make sure that there was gender um, balance, et cetera, et cetera. And that's had to be postponed because of threat of potential legal challenge from people who would rather try and gum up the works legislatively, stop this change happening in the first place. I mean, well, how, do, how do you think that reflects on Wales? I think when I was considering this, the fear that I have is that you're looking at the potential of quite a big culture war. Um, when you look at gender quotas being baked in, there's really wonderful reasons why we should have that right from the start. But I think it is the right approach to take it a little more slowly and embed some of those earlier parts, first of all. Um, you know, looking at that that system of how we're going to have our, our representatives selected um, and service, I think I have quite a unique view from spending a year in lockdown covering Beth and Syed as her inadverted commas locum. Um, and I think what Wales does particularly well is um, whatever the politician, we tend to have a system where people work together, um, you know, 
I think an example that I remember is when all of the regional Senate members would meet um, with the leaders of the local authority in the region to work out what was happening, you know, what were the biggest pressures that they were facing in lockdown that needed to be unplugged at a Welsh government level. And I think that's where we're going to have some real great positives come out of that. So just on the on the question there, I think it's it's worth bringing it in here is that obviously, you know, the 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 Senate was very proud of the fact that it was the first um, uh, evenly split gender parliament anywhere in the world. Big moment of pride uh, for Welsh democracy. Um, we've seen that recede a little bit in recent years where the, the balance has has sort of reverted somewhat to the mean, which is obviously a bit disappointing for many. Um, one of the organisations that had done great work in terms of promoting female figures in Welsh public life is Chwaratek, which has recently had to close its doors for various reasons. And I think it's worth mentioning that here because um, I would imagine that both of you thought quite highly of it and that Wales is a poorer place without Chwaratek existing. So I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about not only the work of Chwaratek, but also what the future without it might look like and what interventions the rest of Welsh civic society could make. Um, shall I throw that to you, Steve? Start with because yeah. you know, let's let's keep the let's keep the um, uh, the male dominated conversation going <laughs> yeah. in existence. Yeah. You know, let's. Yeah, I think it's good to have heard from Steve first because I've only ever yet talked to women about this issue. Um, yeah, so it's it's great to be here. That alternative. Yeah. Oh, there we are. Thank you. Thank you for pulling me, digging me out of that hole, Sarah. That's very much appreciated. <laughs> uh, I think you know what the situation with Quartag is really sad and really concerning. I think, you know, the way that I read it was that the, I think the trustees are taking a decision that they're likely to close. It feels like there might still be a window where we can do something to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I hope Welsh government in whatever way it can, can step in because I think there are two things that worry me. One is actually a lot of charities are in difficulty. And quite often when there's an organisation at risk of closure, if it's private sector, quite often there'll be an expectation that government should step in and do something. Well, actually, charities employ people uh, as well. Um, people's livelihoods in Quarateg uh, are uncertain. So I think there is a genuine need for, for Welsh government to look at you know, what it can do, both to help the individuals in Quarateg, but also help the organisation um, as, a, as a whole. Um, you know, people have been both praised Quartag rightly and also raised criticism, I think, of um, perhaps not doing enough on, on race equality, which I think are a fair criticism. But at the end of the day, Wales is a massively poorer place if we don't have Quartag um, in it. And, you know, the point, I think, just to pick up on, on, on Sarah's point about Senate reform and um, women, the only reason Wales was able to do what it did in terms of gender equality in the Senate and the Assembly before it was measures like all women shortlists and zipping, where political parties just rolled up their sleeves and said, you know what, we're going to take positive measures to make sure we guarantee representation for, for, for women. And whilst I think it's sad that we can't do that in legislation, there's still nothing to stop political parties from organising their candidates in a way which means that the next Senate will have a majority of women, which I hope it, it does. So, I, you know, I think Sarah's argument that actually slow progress is good progress because it allows you, I think, to to kind of um, 
keep and build momentum, but there's nothing to stop political parties from going that extra mile themselves. Yeah, and, and I think just on that one, it's you know, it's about seeing those positive steps from all parties, isn't it? Um, and I think the conversation needs to be had around whether there'll be incentives or sanctions even for them to do that, mm. rather than it being tokenistic. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had, you know, there are a variety of, you know, we should note that there are a variety of different opinions on this, but the, you know, there are a lot of people, including former um, guest on the pod, uh, Richard John, of the former leader of, conservative leader of uh, Monmouthshire County Council, mm -hmm. who said that even in the Conservative Party that they were able to have a, a female, I think it was either gender neutral or a female majority on Monmouthshire County Council because of the work that the party had done proactively within the county. So it is certainly possible. It's something that political parties could do themselves if they are willing to do it. Just to come back to that point on Quarateg, though, if we can, it's really important that, you know, not, it was only 2019 that the Welsh Government said they wanted to be a world leader on gender equality. Um, and it was Quarateg who've really pushed the work behind that. You know, last week we were having a conversation at the cross-party group for women um, on a gender analysis of the budget and state of the nation work that was work again led by Horateg and i think it's real risk for us on that gender mm. balance that we want to achieve and um, when we don't have Horateg doing the policy work the expert advice the scrutiny and particularly you know we've talked about gender equality of our senate members but that isn't just in the individuals who represent us it's the wider action that comes behind it and so i think there's a real risk here that we need to address quite quickly with the gap of Corateg and what they'll be leaving absolutely i think the airlife team would entirely agree with that um uh, I can speak in their absence. I can say anything in their absence. <laughs> Such freedom. Commit them to anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, veterans of Welsh committee structures will have enjoyed that, that aside. Um, so obviously, Plaid Cymru as a party has had to deal with an awful lot of issues recently. There was the, the resignation of Adam Price, which was caused by a long bubbling and gestating problem within the party about what was inverted, in inverted commas called the toxic culture questions of bullying, misogyny, and so on. Um, there seems to have been a lot of progress in the party, and we've had Shreen, um, uh, Shreen Abiodweth on the podcast to talk about it since his uh, election as leader, and we had Liz Savile-Roberts on recently, also talking in part about Project Paub, which was the report by Neris Evans into trying to resolve these questions. And most people had, on the outside, um, seen the party really trying very hard to address the majority of the um, recommendations that Neris Evans made in that Project Power report um, by conference season. Um, however, uh, friend of the pod Will Haywood reported today uh, for Wales Online that there had been a mass resignation in the Carfilly party, a uh, branch of the party, um, because they had lost faith um, in the party's ability to deal with the very issues that had caused so much disruption and internal turmoil in the party of recent. Do you have any thoughts on that and the, the, the progress or lack of progress the party is making, Sarah? Um, I think, again, I can give a little experience from the time that I worked for Beth and Syed. Um, I only spoke to Adam Price twice in the 12 months that I worked for Bethan. Um, 
but I did work quite closely with Reen because I approached him as Shadow Minister for Health and he supported a campaign we were running on But Not Maternity, an award-winning campaign, must I say. Um, and he was engaged, he was kind, he was supportive, um, and he actively engaged in that campaign and supported us um, looking at mental health for new parents. And, and he ran a particular event for new dads because that's something that I didn't want to be part of. It was a closed space for, for dads and he, he could manage that space. Um, so I had quite a lot of, um, and I still do, have positive expectations of changes that will come implied Cymru I think just referring back to what we were doing and what we were talking about with Quarateg it it comes to me as a bigger issue about you know are you taking a feminist approach and coming back to what we were saying about 20 miles per hour earlier on and how I made the mistake of tweeting about it a single tweet that I made on a Sunday when I just felt that it was a nicer environment to be on our streets in a slower speed got 19,000 views and the responses that I had included being called pathetic, idiotic and anti-car moron to get a life, learn the green cross code and my particular favourite that I was a lefty on the gravy train. Um, and so I would like to ask Stephen yourself actually, what would you say to any woman in the world of social media um, as to how they would approach getting involved in politics? I think you know what's what Sarah says doesn't um surprise me, but it always kind of shocks me whenever I hear um stories like that and the experience that Sarah had and somebody who also been on social media kind of advocating exactly the same thing. Um I don't face anywhere near the same kind of degree of uh criticism or, or kind of attention as Sarah does for just making the same point. Um the question of how do we ensure that politics it works in a way that women um, can not just get involved but stay involved I think is really really crucial the question quite often when we talk about women in politics it tends to be about diversity so I think we talk a lot about well how many numbers how many women do we have in parliament there's another big question which is about inclusion and it's what is women's experience once they get elected in parliament does the institution actually work in, in a way that works uh, for women. What's it like to be a woman in public life? I've got friends who are councillors, um, MSs, MPs, who seriously think about leaving and doing something else because of the amount of um, criticism and the amount of sheer brutal misogyny they receive day in, day out. Quite often for things which actually aren't that particularly controversial, uh, you know. Because the same, Sarah was just advocating safer streets, you know, it, it was hardly revolutionary. Um, I think the thing for me is we've all got a, a role in 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 tackling this. I would like to see a stronger, I think, standards process in in, in the Senate and perhaps across Welsh public life. We've got an ombudsman for for local government, but the Senate polices itself, as does the UK Parliament. Perhaps it's time that we have a kind of a standalone body which actually um, enforces some pretty decent standards in how political parties conduct themselves, how political institutions can, can, can conduct themselves, because I'm not sure the general public has a huge amount of faith in processes like the Standards Commissioner in the Senate actually uh, doing the job. Um, and for party staff, again, I you know what I would say to anybody in any situation is join a trade union because a trade union can be fantastic uh, for making sure that your voice is heard in the workplace and you get the support that you need when you go through uh, that that process. 
but I think we all, you know, men and women and everyone has a has a role to play in making sure that politics is a is a place where everybody can can kind of step up and make their voice heard. I'm sure that a friend of the pod, uh, Shavtaj, will have appreciated that plug for trade unions uh, there, Stephen. You know, I completely <laughs> associate myself with the, you know, the vast majority of what you just said, I think. Um, but this is why I find myself um, not hosting the podcast regularly. I am going to make a completely inappropriate joke. I was just going to say, admire the ethics of gravy to be so committed to public transport that it always takes the train rather than the private car. Um, so, so uh, you know, on that, on that, I'm going to move swiftly on. You can um, keep that in the Christmas special. <laughs> um, so, I want to see uh, it in a Christmas crack. <laughs> Uh, just if any if anyone needed uh, proof that I was a dad, that was an official dad. Um, moving on to climate, climate is obviously you know uh, again something that in Wales there's been a, 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 a has until recently been a relatively large consensus that Wales needs to be very proactive in terms of climate policy. However, we've recently seen not just through some of the campaigns uh, in uh, by elections um, across the border. Um, but also some of the tone of planning um, around the net zero um, policy space, but also you know, public transport and infrastructure space. We've recently seen um, HS2 in the news for similar reasons. How would you read the, the, the mood music in the United Kingdom at the moment about addressing the big climate ch challenge, which is on the horizon? You know, we, we were having this conversation actually in a, in a work meeting earlier today and, and just giving the example of you've got drought ravaging East Africa, um, leaving millions and millions of people on the brink of starvation. And in the time that it took Rishi Sunak to deliver his speech last week, that um, kind of set his government's remaining climate credentials on fire. Um, dozens of people across that region would have lost their lives. Um and it's it's that almost populist approach, isn't it, where we're looking for direct action to protect people here in Wales, across the UK and across the world. Um, and what we're seeing is responses that are not meeting that need. That is, you know, we're past a crisis now, aren't we? We're, we're seeing, everyone is starting to see the changes and the difficulties that we face um, in this climate. You know, I think the UK has got a moral obligation to be a leader on this. You know, our historic prosperity was built on the back of of, of high emission industry. Um, so I think it's right that the UK kind of steps up and, and does as much as it can. Um, and in fairness to the Conservative government over the last thirteen years, if you if you actually put its record alongside other centre right governments across the world, it does hold up. So it is quite sad to see. I think Rishi Sunak kind of rode back from from some of the work that they've done. Um, I when I heard about the announcement just thought you know it gave me uh, you know memories of we've all done kind of like christmas parties where you go to an escape room and the clock's ticking down and you're panicking and you you're touching this and pulling that and just trying everything and everything to kind of get out of the situation that you're in um that feels like what rishi Sunak's doing now he, he's kind of junking policies that don't even exist to try i think and um kickstart um his his government I think the reality is most people in Britain actually understand that climate change is a massive issue. I think they get the fact that it's going to cause a serious economic damage, let alone social you know, damage to our society and damage to, to our environment. Obviously, there's a kind of a debate to be had about who shoulders the burden of, of what we need to do. But I think people will see what Rishi Sunak is doing as fundamentally reckless 
Um, because sooner or later, the measures that he has jumped, the, the actual ones that he committed to, um, sooner or later, we're going to have to do those as a country. Um, and either we do them now in good time and set ourselves up to have a successful you know, end of the 21st century, um, or we wait and, um, you know, it becomes increasingly harder to, to, to make the switch to, you know, electric vehicles or kind of gas-free boilers or, or whatever else it might be. So let's talk about, um, you know, we, we obviously just talked about the potential change of tack within the UK Conservative Party with regards to questions of net zero and environmentalism. And there is, you know, there's a more nuance than the, the headline there, but that certainly seems to be the direction of travel. As we're on the cusp of party conference season uh, for the UK-wide parties, you know, with the, the Welsh parties as part of that, how would you appraise the positions of uh, certainly the, 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 the bigger players, Conservatives, the Labour Party and um, the Liberal Democrats as they head into their conference? What are the, the kind of top issues that you see them debating or struggling with um, as they go through? And I'll throw that to you first, Steve, if I may. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I think for for me, I mean, party conference season really kicks off the election period. Um, I think it's more than likely that Rishi Sunak will probably go for a May twenty twenty four general election. I think it probably makes sense because he'll, you know, there's local elections in England. Tory councillors will be out trying to get votes for themselves, so it, it kind of makes sense that. You know, if he has a rough, if he doesn't do it, then if he goes later, um, he risks losing a swathe of Tory councillors who would have been out kind of campaigning for him. So I think we're probably looking at a, a May 2024 general election. So I think this party conference season really is the start of the the long general election campaign. If we can um, all get get ready for for that, I think for Labour, it's about continuing to show um, discipline. Um, I think they've run so far quite a cautious campaign. Um, I've been sad that there are some things which I feel passionate about, like the restoration of DFID, the Department for International Development. You know, Labour have said that they, they you know, won't necessarily uh, do that. But I think we need to see Labour kind of continue, I think, that kind of cautious, steady campaigning, which which they've done. Um, I think for the Tories, Rishi Sunak will try and hold the party together as much as he can. Um he's got a difficult task, I think, because there are people who disagree with him on matters of policy. And after 13 years, that kind of racks up. There are people who are upset because of personnel issues. Maybe their friend was sacked from the cabinet or um, their, their mate was kind of deposed at some point when they were briefly prime minister. So after kind of 13 years, you you get this kind of backlog of kind of gripes and grievances that you've somehow got to, to manage. So I think for him, it's just getting through uh, conference season um, unscathed. But the other thing I, I, I'd say, which didn't really get a huge amount of pickup um, when it was um, when it was aired a few weeks ago, was Mark Drakeford was on, um, I think it was Times Radio in an interview with Mariella Fostra, and he said he didn't envisage himself being around um, in the first minister role twelve months from then. Um, so I think we're also seeing probably the start of the long campaign to be uh, the next. First Minister, I think the Welsh Labour leadership uh, campaign will start hotting up uh, in the, the immediate weeks and months ahead. If I can just follow up on that, Steve, just before I go to, to Sarah, I think it can be very easy, certainly from Wales, to see a certain degree of uh, simplicity about the position that the Conservatives find themselves in in Westminster and to a certain degree in Wales as well. Do you feel that there's enough 
substance there or there's enough critical thinking there for them to be able to either not lose the next election or win the next election, whether it takes place in 24 or start of 25. Yeah, I don't think the next election is a, is a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there is always political events that can that can happen and that can change um, the course of, of, of the future. So it's by no means, I think, a done deal that the Tories are going to find themselves in opposition. I think the problem they've got is they don't have a vision of what the UK, what a successful UK looks like outside of the European Union in the 2020s. They're not really able to articulate what a kind of a better Britain uh, looks like. And then there's no kind of cohesive set of policies which then speak to that, which kind of say, well, this is how we're going to kind of enact that vision. And it's pretty kind of, you know, basic stuff for any political party or even, you know, a campaigning charity to, to lay out your wares and to say, this is the kind of the big thing that we want to do and this is how we're going to do it. We just don't really have that from, from the Tory party. And what we do have, like in Wales with 20 miles an hour, like in London with the, you know, the, the rollback on net zero or, or kind of a series of tactical um, decisions. And I think the electorate will just look at that. So we don't really know what you're for anymore. You know, we managed you to perhaps run the economy competently to keep our streets safe and to keep, you know, Britain, um, you know, standing in the world high. We don't really see any evidence of those basic things happening. So, you know, what is it that the modern Tory party wants to achieve over the next five years? And they've still got time to kind of, I think, articulate that. But my sense is I don't think they know. Um, so unless I think there's a big kind of shift, some kind of external event, I think we're almost certainly looking at the Tories losing, whether that's a Labour majority or whether that's a hung parliament is another question. Yeah. And, and you know, this is a period of extraordinary stability uh, for the Conservative <laughs> Party and that we haven't had a new prime minister for a whole a year. You know, it's crazy. Uh, um, so well, we've been knows? on Twitter for about 30 minutes. So, <laughs> no. you know. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I, I say, uh, I've just watched back. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a BBC documentary called uh, State of Chaos with Laura, I think State of Chaos with Laura Kinsberg. Yeah. And, and it just reminded me, was it last year that we went through hundreds of cabinet ministers and, and members of the government within the space of several weeks. It was quite extraordinary times. Yeah. Chaos really does understand it. Sarah, sorry. I think there was one intrigue that I had when I listened to another podcast um, and there was an interview with John Major um, and he said in that interview, he was looking back on, you know, what it was like when he won and when he lost then a following election. Um, and he said there were certain mistakes he was watching Keir Starmer make. And they asked, what were those mistakes? And he was like, of course, I'm not going to give them away. But I, and I was just desperate to know what were those little things that he thought were mistakes that, that could be different. And I think I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing what what will happen, what that discourse will be. But I'm particularly excited, um, the geek that I am. I've been campaigning on childcare for the last decade. Um, and I know that some big um, moments were announced by the Lib Dems over the weekend in their conference on childcare, commitments to double statutory pay for parental leave, flexibility in the childcare offer that they'll have at a UK level. Um, and then also, you know, childcare is something that is now being recognised as essential infrastructure. Um, there was a petition in Wales over the summer um, for um, extra support in childcare, and that gathered over 10,000 signatures, which is quite hefty for a, a petition of, of that ilk. Um, so I'm excited about that one and how that's going to be a particular issue. If I can move us to thinking about 
the future of Wales. Obviously, you know, I, I'm not necessarily slave to the idea of electoral cycles, but we are, as Steve mentioned, potentially looking at a, a change of first minister in the not too distant future. Um, that will obviously be quite a, an interesting debate for the future of Labour, uh, Welsh Labour, as it potentially looks towards a potential new Labour government at the other end of the M4. You know, as we talked about earlier, Ply Cymru have recently changed their leader. The Conservatives have not done so, although it always seems to be something that's on the horizon. And maybe that is or isn't the case now. We look forward to hearing from um, some of our Conservative friends um, about the likelihood of that. And I know it's very difficult to say if there's going to be a change of Lib Dem leader because there is only one Le Le uh, Lib Dem uh, member of the Senate at the moment, although that may change in future elections. What would you be looking at in terms of the statements, whether at their own standalone conference, like Ply Cymru, obviously, or, or the Welsh parties within that wider UK family of party structures in the in the next few months? Are we looking, you know, are you expecting to hear anything that you think, oh, that would be a really game changer for Wales and Welsh politics? Or is it largely steady as she goes in the face of quite difficult economic headwinds? I think for me, the, the kind of the era of kind of like big flashy policy announcements and big kind of spending commitments are over. I think it, any responsible political party will know the country is in a hole fiscally. So your ability to, um, if you like, promise the earth is, is, is very limited. Um, and, you know, whilst I'm a, a sucker for rhetoric and, you know, great speakers, I think in Wales and across the UK, people are just crying out for competent, quiet government that actually perhaps, um, you know, under promises and over delivers um, rather than the reverse, which is perhaps what we've had uh, for a few years, um, certainly at, at Westminster. I think in Wales, I mean, obviously, it's more than likely that we will have a new first minister next year. The two kind of front runners uh, seem to be Vaughan Gethin and, and, and Jeremy Miles. I think there will be more uh, potential candidates that kind of come out um uh, in in the kind of the weeks uh, ahead um there's almost certainly going to be a woman i think um on the ballot and people are talking about hannah blythe as, as possibly that that person i think what i would like to see is a debate about their vision for wales uh and their ideas um and what they think not just the future of wales uh, should be and how we're going to kind of address some of the big kind of challenges facing the country but also you know what's the role of welsh government in making that stuff um, happen. Um, I don't think it will be a long uh, leadership campaign. Um, I think they've probably learned the lessons of the SNP and, and the Tories with their recent uh, leadership campaigns um, and, and how uh, wrong and, and off um, those, uh, those two contests went. But I think even if it is a shorter um, contest, there should still be a conversation and a debate, which you know is not just an internal Labour Party debate. It involves trade unions, the rest of the movement, and, and civil society and the people of Wales. But there needs to be, I think, a debate about where is is, is Wales going. We don't need, I think, a, a kind of a personality contest uh, or a beauty contest. I think actually, a, you know, a genuine discussion about where Wales is headed is needed. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I would uh, definitely echo those comments that it would be great to have a public debate. And on that subject, I shall plug our relatively recent interviews with both Jeremy Miles and Vaughan Gething. <laughs> as, as yet to book uh, Hannah Blythe in, but I'm sure that we'll hear from her office uh, if she's interested. Um, uh, uh, Sarah, do you have any thoughts on that and what you'd like to see either from the Welsh leaders in the UK parties or from Ply Cymru in the current or upcoming conference season? Um 
I'm going to be totally on brand with Oxfam Cymru. And um, for me, it's the fact that Wales is still languishing in in inequality and poverty. You know, we have, I remember a geography teacher that I had saying, if you're going to look for Wales, look at the top and bottom of a list, because we'll either be having the highest or the, the lowest when it concerned, you know, depending on the question. And I think I want to see a real change you know we are a Wales who was going to end child poverty by 2020 we're now in 2023 we're looking at a new strategy and we're working with the Welsh government on that strategy to tackle child poverty but it isn't just children children don't live in poverty alone it's because of the problems that their parents and guardians are facing and we need to address that um, and particularly I think it's that investment in care and how that can reduce poverty and inequality and boost our economy. You know, we've had conversations about the NHS, about social care, about unpaid care, and and all of those things are what everyday people are facing and, and fighting against. And that's where I'd like to see those changes. As Steve was saying, it's, you know, it's those everyday things that people are tackling where they want to see real change. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. I think it's about jobs, it's about housing, it's about public services, making sure that the education system works. Um, I think we've got some big challenges around skills and making sure that we've got, you know, a skills base in Wales, which is able to withstand the strong winds that we know are going to come down the line from, from climate change. Um, but Wales is positioned ready to, to, to take some of those, um, those opportunities. Um, you, we just saw what happened with Tata Steel. You know, there are thousands of steel workers who are facing a real uncertain future, those really well-paid jobs. Um, there's obviously a job to do to make sure that, you know, Tata is supported um, to, to decarbonize. But, you know, Tata Steel is one of the few remaining big industrial employers in Wales. And we were a country that was kind of founded on that type of economy. So I think all political parties need to really think about how can we make sure that we've got a strong Welsh economy that we're kind of, we're protecting the jobs that we've got. It's, you know, decarbonisation, not deindustrialization. You're not going to stick that on a banner, but, you know, effectively we need to safeguard the, the jobs in those industries that are at risk today, but also say, how can we get ready um, so that we're well positioned to kind of get more jobs um, in, in, in the economy of tomorrow? And I think we're starting to see that debate. And I think the kind of a new generation of political leaders, certainly Welsh Labour, is quite exciting because I think it gives us that kind of generational change where we think about, what kind of Wales do we want in the 2020s and 2030s? Um, but really, I'd love to see the kind of the centre of political conversation shift back to, as Sarah said, those bread and butter issues around things like jobs, childcare, decent public services. Yeah, and very timely that. In fact, I, 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 I hesitate to plug another Hiraith podcast, but last <laughs> last week we spoke with um, Michelle Matherin from the Open University in Wales and also Josh Miles from the Learning and Work Institute, where we yeah. were talking about that very thing, about how getting people to continue to learn and continue to upskill through their lives is actually one of the big unmet challenges in Wales. And actually, you know, there was a lot of glimmers of hope for there. So I'd encourage anybody interested in that field to listen back to last week's, uh, last week's pod. Um, so thank you very much both for joining uh, the pod uh, to talk about some of these issues. I think just as we close, um, I'm going to throw a question out to your different areas of specialty. So, um, Steve, uh, what would you, you know, as you know, we've covered a lot of the stuff around conferences and politics and some of the pressing policy issues there. 
But what would you advise our listeners to keep a watchful eye and ear out during the month to come? Is there anything on your radar that may be, you know, glaringly obvious or kind of one of the more subtle issues that people should just be keeping an eye on in the back burner um, in the in the next few months? I think the working budget is probably the one that will have the biggest impact on people's lives in Wales, but arguably might be the, the one which has the least uh, political uh, attention. The Welsh government have got to find something like 90, uh, £900 million, I think, in this financial year. Um, and then very, very soon after that, they'll have to pass the budget for the next financial year. Um, £900 million sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Um, after 13 years of austerity, I, for one, don't envy the finance minister trying to find £900 million worth of, of savings. So I think we're in for quite a long <laughs> political winter um, where there's a lot of conversation about what Welsh Government's priorities should be uh, in terms of spending and investment. Is this also the last budget that will be covered by the cooperation agreement? So, yeah. you know, potentially future budgets in this Senate term could be a lot more difficult for the Welsh Government to pass. Is that is that fair to say? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think the the next one, so the, what year are we? I've got COVID head. Uh, 24, 25 uh, budget, which sounds space age, I think is the last um, Welsh Government budget that's um, covered by the cooperation agreement. Um, Welsh Labour will then need to have kind of another conversation either with Plaid Cymru or, or the Liberal Democrats. Uh, about a budget deal, um, but as I say, the kind of the position for it for any political party is really, really challenging. So it's going to be uh, an interesting time to watch. Thanks very much. And and Sarah, you know, not only the same question to you, but also I wonder if you could also tell us a little bit about what's what's happening in Oxfam Cymru now and what we should be keeping an eye on in the in the year to come with Oxfam Cymru's work here in Wales. Yeah, I think um, we're in a really exciting time in Oxfam Cymru in that. We've embedded with a lot of the new strategies that we've been working on and and kind of it's it's looking at tackling those structural inequalities um, that are behind poverty. Um, we've got some groundbreaking research coming up on childcare in the autumn. Um, and that is the first time that there's there's real statistical data provided on childcare um, from parents, um, you know, staggering results on affordability and what they want to see from decision makers. So we're hoping that that can be useful in some of these conversations. Um, we've been doing some work with grassroots organisations and really using that brand of Oxfam to support smaller groups. Um, one particular one has been really nice because we've engaged all of our shops in that to provide an opportunity for unpaid carers to get their voices heard. Um, and we've also been working with the Banabrachainiog and Climate Cymru on a project called the Race to Zero, which is about accelerating action to encourage all public bodies in Wales to work collaboratively to meet the reduction in targets um, on climate action um, and really it's about a shift from considering the own the one percent of control that they have to change their own emissions to the 30 percent that they can influence so something that is quite staggering and, and seeing positive change already um, and so we're really excited about the next steps for that and obviously you know 
We've also got the general work that we're doing on child poverty strategy, looking at a discussion, hopefully with Steve involved on um, a Wales that cares for people and planet. Um, and I think it's worth pointing that we do all that on a staff of 2.5, um, mm. just two and a half people in Oxfam in Wales at the moment. And I think that is telling of lots of larger and small charities that we're dependent on quite a lot of work with just a small number of people. And that pressure isn't easy for all those organisations to cope with. Wow, that's the same number of Oxfam people that are on this call right now, mm. isn't it? Um, uh, and this is where uh, I have to obligatory say that if anybody who's listening would like to follow Oxfam Cymru, which uh, social handles uh, should they be looking out for, Sarah? And you're more than welcome to share your own, but I appreciate, bear in mind the conversation we said <laughs> we had earlier, um, you might want to just stick to the Oxfam ones. You can find Oxfam Cymru on Twitter, on oh, it's X now, isn't it? Um, on Instagram, and it's just look for Oxfam Cymru, and you'll find us. Fab. And Steve, the same is true to you. I appreciate you don't necessarily have an organisation of your own to plug, but you might want to plug either your own. Um, you might want to share your own handle or handle of somewhere that you think is really interesting for our listeners to follow. Yeah. Uh, well. I um, I, I tweet or X from uh, Stephen Brooks uh, UK, uh, Stephen with a PH, which is something I've been saying for all of my life. Um, I, and yeah, feel free to uh, send insults my way and I'll, I'll meet you. <laughs> I wonder why it didn't respond to my messages. Uh, so um, I can only say thank you very much for your time. It's been a really interesting uh, discussion and um, look forward to uh, speaking to you again in the future. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.